basic things were schools. I had two kids and they weren't on any list to be considered to go into school because I was a member of the armed forces. So there was no due regard, no armed forces covenant in its entirety. And that really was a, a barrier for me. Uh, but it was my children. So I said, hang on a minute. What is going wrong here? Why is this not set up? I've just given you 18 years of my life uh, and, and delivered unquestionably in terms of you know the, the missions and tasks that were set out. So why is it now where I'm six months out and I can't get my kids into school? My name is Johnny Ball and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Ryan McCready is an infantry veteran and local government representative from Northern Ireland. After a full operational career that included time as an instructor at Sandhurst, Ryan is taking on politics in a refreshing and positive new way. Ever present on both social media and the doorstep, Ryan is motivated by what he learned in the army and for a better future for his family. It's time for you to meet our guest. I'm joined by Alderman Ryan McCready from Northern Ireland, a former Soldier of the Year, member of the Royal Irish Regiment and recipient of the NATO Meritorious Service Medal. But also, so I see, a bit of a dab hand on TikTok and skateboarding around your office. Is that right, mate? That's right, Johnny. It certainly is. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've seen you a bit of a. You're really trying to make the efforts around social media, which is really refreshing to see with with politicians. Um, but yeah, how's all that engagement going so far on social media? Uh, so far, so good. There's always a, an element of risk of either doing something different or you know, approaching things a bit differently, especially in politics where everything normally comes across really well groomed. Uh, it's all polished. It's very presentable. Where it's so boring, and when you look at just people nowadays, what's well, our generation, they like to be communicated differently, different platforms, different age groups, and and show them that you're just a human, irrespective of, like, you give me a great introduction there, Johnny, which I'm thankful for, but I'm just Brian McCready, and it's it's that simple. And when you engage with people, whether they're skateboarders, they're golfs, or they've got an interest in, in farming, we've all got a common denominator, we're all human, we've got more in common than difference, and that's where I start from, and that's the way I'll go on, hopefully in politics, which we'll soon see. Yeah, that work, that skateboard, can, that really connected to me because I'm like the, the world's oldest skateboarder, um, a, long board, a long boarder because it's easier. Um, but no, yeah. in, in, in all seriousness, it did really connect. And it's, it's great to see that people like yourself are trying these different ways to connect with younger people. But of course, growing up in Northern Ireland, um, which is seen as a particularly political place um, and having served there myself in, in your, in your, your place um, in the late nineties, um, I'm really keen to understand what your perspective was like growing up in Northern Ireland. And what was it like for you growing up? I suppose largely growing up as a young person in Northern Ireland, it wasn't as extreme at the time, 
but on reflection, you look at it and it wasn't normal. So, you know, I remember things uh, like you do see soldiers on the ground. Um, there are checkpoints um, on occasion when you're over doing Christmas shopping and you're being held you know, by your mother mother's hand and she's taking you in to get bits and bobs. Then there'll be a load of commotion, uh, police tape, and you're being uh, shuffled along like sheep towards one end of the street or the other. And at the time, you don't really get it. And then you hear the, you know, the adults talking about, uh, you know, a bomb scare or there's been an issue or an incident, but it doesn't really register as a kid. It's just you feel that it's normal because you have nothing else really to, to gauge it by. It's only whenever like I'm older, um, when you, when I went through service and, and got a brief deployment back here, that I started to understand the, the real complexities and the issues. But as far as the childhood went, you know, I had a great childhood, um, but all those things thrown in didn't really stop me from having a good time or similar to try and exploit some of the opportunities that my parents really fought for. But there's also that aspect where it really was a binary in a way, you know, whether it's religion or your political affiliation. And it's all by chance. You know, if I had been born maybe in the city side, I would have been a nationalist um, and probably a Catholic, where in the instance where I was born, I was a Protestant and by default, a unionist. So when you look at it like that, you didn't really have a choice back then. And you didn't really have a choice to to integrate because it was taken out of your hands. And even nowadays, our education system is very fractured or fragmented into all sorts of controlled, not controlled, uh, state-sponsored. You've got um, religion-based stuff and, and all that. So you didn't get to mix with anyone. So you already had these kind of preconceived ideas of people. You're very standoffish with people who may have wore a like a Celtic jersey or a Rangers jersey, and that was a, a that would denote what religion people were here. And very very odd when you you look back on it. But that was was my reality as a, as a kid. And you know, separate bus stops, separate schools, and and just different places where you wouldn't really integrate. And and I suppose a, an interesting thing. And when I went through basic training, I had my my bed space when I was opposite a guy from outside Dublin. And when you get to your week six, you get your quilts and you're allowed to have your, your niceties. Then we were allowed to put our, our national flags above our bed space. So I had a Fijian to the right of me, myself kind of from Northern Ireland. So I had a, an Ulster flag and uh, there was an Englishman, a couple other guys from Belfast. And the guy opposite uh, had a tricolour. And I thought, goodness, the only times I had seen tricolours was when people were burning them on top of bonfires. But yet here's me uh, in a room where I've just been... Uh, working alongside this guy, beasted along this side, you know, eating together, sleeping together, and and training to be a soldier in the British Army. And it was only at that point I thought, right, I really need to look back on how we do things in Northern Ireland. So that was the kind of first seed that was planted in my brain that things weren't really uh, the way they should be here. <laughs> isn't isn't that a beautiful thing that I think people talk about in corporate worlds about diversity and inclusion. Well, we all wear the same uniform and no matter what backgrounds you come from, particularly with those Commonwealth countries that you mentioned as well, it's such a powerful thing about service. And indeed, you went, you served yourself. Uh, What was your, can you tell us a little bit about your own key drivers, about how you wanted to go on and serve? And where did that lead you into your military career? It's a really good question. In terms of motivations, not necessarily being directly linked with being in a, a conflict society where we had soldiers on the ground, but it did give you exposure to, well, that's the military and you can, small things where you see them kneeling down, 
they had shiny boots or, or things were very uniformity it was very military-esque and there's something which is i know it's it's something which is very attractive they say you know they're not just one person they're not standing on their own they've got a team they've got a common purpose uh you know they, they work very efficient and just these things which was attractive i said you know what that's in the back of my brain and so i thought about the army cadets about 13 or 14 or so i said right i want to get in that uniform i want to give it a go and you know, get in the mud and just play soldiers and see what it's all about. So that kind of really f- formed my idea of what I thought I wanted to be when I when I left school and education. And the Army Cadets really brought that together. Uh, it taught you basic things about, you know, making your bed, cleaning your shoes, that, just being resilient, uh, independent. You know, I think it's a, a wonderful and a fantastic start to life irrespective of whether anybody joins the military or, or the forces in any way, but just those kind of basics. And there was a competitive aspect to it. So the Army cadets would have these Calcutta Cup shooting competitions, sports comp. everything was a competition. And so there was that part of, of you want to excel in everything you do. And when you're competing with like-minded people in a way that you're all driven, but from a very you know diverse background in some cases, and everything else was immaterial. Once you donned the uniform and you were all in the mud together or in the same uh, competition, it was right, let's kind of get on with it. And that really gave me a springboard to, to join, which I did. And I joined the Royal Irish Regiment as about 16 and a half, 17, just close to 17. So I just about squeezed through all them policies, which I didn't know at the time, to go in as a as an adult soldier directly into Catrick. And... I find myself in that kind of wee room of eight people of all different uh, backgrounds and different abilities as well, in a way where, where you're young, some are old, uh, some are more fitter, some are muscular in comparison to me. And I thought, goodness, you know, how can I, you know, compete with these guys? And then you realize that you're not competing against them. You're all, you know, competing against the common standards, you know, to, or to get to that common standard. And so my drivers were about excellence at the forefront but once I I suppose was in the army and basic training and things became real it was real life and that moment for me was it was during the 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 start of the Iraq campaign around 2002 or 3 when things were were blowing up in the media I suppose and where my regiment the Royal Irish was part of 16 brigades so they were giving warning orders and and they were preparing uh, for their deployments rough timelines but I was still in training in Catrick, but yet we were singled out to say, you need to go and get your anthrax uh, dose one, dose two and booster. And that's when it was real. And our instructor said, you guys are going to war, you know, and that's the right. And that's when the reality initially set in for me, albeit I didn't actually deploy with them because I was still underage. And Colonel Tim Collins at the time, his policy was that anybody in the regiment must go as far forward as they can. Um, and we ended up in Cyprus, uh, around 10 or 12 of us, until our 18th birthday. Then we would get shipped forward. But their deployment was long over by the time I turned 18. <laughs> you know, but... Those, um, you've already mentioned, uh, obviously, a very famous um, commanding officer, and you had a very famous regimental sergeant major at that time. Um, someone that you're working with now, of course. Um, certain Doug Beatty, right. MC. Yeah, Johnny, I won't hold back, because my first... Um, kind of engagement, walk-in uh, with uh, Doug Beatty then, the RSM, 
was I was on guard duty, front of the gate in, uh, in around Canterbury. And normal guard duty, you do what you're told, you're there, all the kit and stuff. And we were looking straight down the road, about two, three hundred metres towards the uh, battalion headquarters. And I seen this kind of figure who I've heard about before, but I've never actually had a one-to-one or a, uh, anything with him. And the closer he got, I had knew, and the guy I was with knew that he had clocked on to us at the front gate. Then I could hear the, the kind of roar. It was intelligible. I couldn't understand what he was saying, but it was roaring. And he was locked on with a pace stick coming towards us. So uh, my oppo and myself were just there geared up. And he came straight in, has the RSM kind of straight in with a stick, you know, asking us all these questions and gave us a bit of a rough time so that he knew what, what we were doing and we knew what we were doing and stuff. So after about two or three minutes of, of him being the RSM, he kind of goes uh, out of character almost. And, but other than that, everything all right, lads? All good? We're like, yes, yeah, sir. He goes, right, I'm waiting to find someone else to shout at. <laughs> and away he goes. <laughs> so that that was my first um, first kind of meeting engagement with with the with Doug Beattie. And and since then, you know, he was kind of his career was twenty years ahead of mine. Um, but we did intersect along um, our careers then. So things like uh, for a period of time, I got detached to Sixteen Brigade as a forward air controller, or commonly referred to as a JTAC. And we would work with all the battle groups and all the different units. And I was get I got flown in with everyone on mass, but I was on an, an artillery unit per se. And Doug Beattie was on the flight, and he had been there before. And, where in this instance in 2008 would have been my first Herrick deployment. He had been uh, in Garmseer, uh, where some of the exploits you can read uh, in his book. And he, he always referenced this JTAC. And, and I said, oh, that's the, that's the kind of the role and the job. You know, I've just been through for the last year in order to go in operations. And, you know, any feedback? And we had a really good, deep conversation about the absolute reality of war and how brutal and devastating, in particular, the likes of, of you know, 2,000 pound, 1,000 pound, 500 pounders, these are serious bits of weaponry, you know, not to be um, you know, thrown about the battlefield because it works both ways in terms of close air support and danger close and indeed with, with civilian casualties. I, I never forgot that conversation and it might just have been a brief conversation for him, but for me going into the, the operation with that type of role, I, I, I always remember that. So when we talked about collateral damage estimate or balance and risk and reward, I, I, you know, I was given that head start rather than learning a lesson after dropping my first bomb to go, maybe we should consider X, Y, and Z. But yeah, so that was kind of another meeting I had. And then as you referenced, Johnny, we're now aligned again in some shape or fashion, which is politics. He is the leader of the All Unionist Party. He was probably instrumental in my decision when I went independent for a, a brief period of time to align with the Austrian Unionist Party with his new vision and the, the kind of that freedom of action that you can have uh, within that vision. As you said, the being moderate, being confident, more inclusive um, to kind of delivering for Northern Ireland, irrespective of what happened in the past, where it was normally a binary question of where you sat politically. So that kind of might, might gives you a good outline of that snake of, of a path that Doug Beatty and I uh, met, diverged and back in at different points throughout, throughout our time together. 
when you described that walk from the guardhouse um, at Hal Barracks, because I was at Hal Barracks as well, one PWRR, yeah. that was really, I was taken right back there and I can almost, I was almost stood with you at attention <laughs> seeing Doug, big bad Doug Beatty coming towards you with that pace stick. And who'd have thought, eh, back then, um, that young soldier now shoulder to shoulder in politics um, in Northern Ireland with Doug. That's an absolutely phenomenal journey that you've both been on uh, at different times, yeah. different paces maybe but here you are now so would you say that actually doug has been that one of those instrumental people that's actually strived for you to stand up and serve again in in politics and how's that journey going so far for you at the moment it's an interesting journey um like politics in general it's more easy to say no to it because like who really needs the the hassle or you know the, the negative connotations that come with it um whether it's tied to you or not and i suppose that is one of the barriers maybe for you know veterans going into politics is they've got a very good career that it's prestigious and and with the awards and, and everything that you mentioned but to go into politics uh, in terms of drivers i was aware doug Beatty, andy allen like so johnny mercer and you know and a few other heavy hitters out there so when i considered politics at the beginning i said well you know, may, maybe it, it can be done you don't have to be the likes of churchill or you know those overpowering uh you know legacy of people and so initially, the, the driver wasn't to look at other people and say, well, they've done any politics, maybe I should. Mine was certainly much more uh, basic need in a way. And I, as I went through transition from leaving the forces, going back into Northern Ireland, setting up my family, looking at the private sector and a few other uh, aspirations I had, basic things were schools. I had two kids and they weren't on any list to be considered to go into school because I was a member of the Armed Forces. So there was no due regard, no Armed Forces Covenant in its entirety. And that really was a, a barrier for me. Uh, but it was my children. So I said, hang on a minute. What is going wrong here? Why is this not set up? I've just gave you 18 years of my life uh, and, and delivered unquestionably in terms of you know the, the missions and tasks that were set out. So why is it now where I'm six months out and I can't get my kids into school and I'm being disadvantaged? So that was a, a one where I thought, how do I fix that? So I looked around, didn't really know what that structure of politics was, local council, MLA, Mass Westminster. It was all just white noise. Um, during my career, I didn't have many much interest in it. And so I was speaking to local councillors. I was, you know, I said, what about this? And I would get the same answers of, oh, well, Northern Ireland is different. You know, it's the armed forces. Things are complex here. I didn't care because my, it involved my family and my kids. So and when I looked at the politicians, um, I spoke with them and I compared them in terms of the quality of, of delivery to what I was used to in the armed forces. It wasn't at the same standard what I would expect from other people. And that's not a that's not been disingenuous to them. That's just a, com- a comparison between how we served and how we operated in the military with the way we do, the, the drive, the, the you know, that kind of motivations, ambition to get things done. Where in politics, I didn't see the same level of drive and determination to get things done. Um, so then that's when I looked at local politics. And at that point, I had a decision to make. I had some free time. I was uh, generating some uh, small businesses, a few bits of consultancy within anti-drone technology where I had uh, actually learned from deployments in Ukraine and subsequently in the Middle East again, likes of Kabul. Um, so I said, right, I'm going to give this a go. So I tried to orientate myself and it was very insular in terms of it was my area, um, my local politics. So I didn't even look further afield generally. 
even within Northern Ireland, because I didn't see it as, as delivering as politics. I wanted to make things better on the ground where I live for my people, you know, selfishly in a way. But that's that's where I started and joined a local party, which was uh, a unionist one. Uh, all unionist party virtually weren't really there. So there was no platform. There was no team. I couldn't really join or do anything, do anything with it. I was more concentrated on delivering something and fixing some of those problems for likes of veterans, uh, and which I did go on to uh, meet some local veterans. We've looked at the founding of a veterans hub within Londonderry, and that's ongoing. So I did manage to deliver some of it, but then I got a taste for, well, hang on a minute, we can do so much more. But the more I wanted that uh, freedom to do so much more, unfortunately, the party that it was in didn't have that freedom of movement, that latitude or freedom of thought to do that. So I went independent, which is very bumpy. It's a difficult thing to do to leave any party or challenge things or that status quo that I always reference. Um, So I did. I just ripped off the plaster and said, I need some time time out to think, to speak with local people, uh, find out, you know, do you want me to remain in politics? If so, we have a, we needed to make a decision to, you know, where, where do I feel closely aligned to and how can I deliver more for you? And in the background, I have conversations with all political parties, leaders and those on the ground that I know. And But Doug Beatty, when he took over as party leader, that was a catalyst, which was burning in the background anyway. So, And he was playing it. He didn't do anything out of the ordinary or he didn't exploit our friendship. He just made it clear that he's there and there's opportunities to deliver more for, for, for people in my area. And that did get my attention. But... I didn't do anything with a predetermined uh, decision. And I did say that to him. I said, look, when I go independent, I'm precisely that. And, and give me that six weeks to go back out to the electorate and say, look, if we, now is the time to change. Let, let's go and do it. And they said, Ryan, no better man. Get on with it. And here I am now as the Ulster Unionist Party foil candidate for the assembly elections, which is the next level of government in Northern Ireland. Do you know what? Just the length of your answer and that, that consideration you've given to your politics is so refreshing to hear because I've asked people um, who want to be MPs, who kind of want to be something rather than do something, and they just can't answer that question. But the fact that you've clearly got a, a, your family has motivated you clearly there, and, and that's not the first time I've heard that from a veteran as well, actually. Greer Martin over in the in the US gave a similar response in terms of what really motivated him to stand up and serve again. So absolutely brilliant answer, mate. Um, so thank you. But what about what have your mates said about it? The ordinary people outside of politics, not your political, or, or, but maybe your military mates or civilian mates. How how have they viewed your participation in politics? What's it been like for them? The good thing when you get feedback from the ones you serve with or those, they've got no filter. They'll tell you exactly uh, not what you want to hear. Um, they'll tell you what they think or um, the good and the bad that com- comes with it. Um, you know, the f- first thing out, they're very supportive on doing stuff. The fact is politics, some of them will be open and say, look, here, you're not getting my vote, but fair play to you. And, you know, I'm, you know, it's good to see you in there. Keep doing what you're doing type thing. And, you know, so there's no divide whenever you, it's probably similar with most veterans in a way, um, where the, it's not necessarily the party or this, you're still that kind of veteran at heart. So there's more in common in the background. So the, the fact you and I, so we have, may not have served directly together at one point, but I know 90% of the stuff, you, I, that, that profile of, ah, 
you know, he's got an age. I can have a similar conversation the same way that we would have if we pulled up a sandbag together, you know, in, in, in Helmand province or anywhere else that we would deploy to. So it's raw feedback, which is great. It keeps you grounded. So if you ever, if you're doing so much social media where you're starting to turn into, it's all about me, 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 you'll soon get a message going, right, Ryan, uh, this is not about you. This is about so-and-so get back to your roots. Uh, and which is, it doesn't happen that, but that's the kind of thing where they would say to you, look, or have you thought about this? Um, you may consider this and, uh, and they don't sugarcoat it. They'll just tell you exactly what you need to be told. And I really like that. And it helps me. So when I speak with those of the electorate, no connection with the armed forces, some are completely opposed to it, but I can be deadly straight with them uh, and not have to make up these false promises or, or try and win over everyone. I'll just be straight and say, look, here's where I'm at at the moment, you know, and I've taken on your concerns or this and that, and I'll do what I can, but if there's no result, there's no result. And, and a lot of times politicians from my point of view always want to please everyone. Uh, and at some point you get caught out um, at, at worst case scenario, um, you'd be called, you'd be called out at the, at the polling station or that wee old lady who you didn't get back to, you know, it's just, it's not the way to do politics. So that in terms of what, I've read in, in some of the stuff before about that kind of you know, veterans in politics, that service to others, that there is one of the core, it keeps you honest. It's a core, not necessarily a driver, but in terms of your methodologies, you could have lots of different policies, but how you actually do business in politics, service to others is is one which I've probably reflected more recently in the remembrance, you know, during November and stuff. It's things like that where you go into it a bit more deeper and go, well, you know, what would so-and-so think? Or, you know, am I still true to my word? Or have I completely lost it and, and threw all my you know, military core values out of the window just to chase, you know, an MP seat or this and that seat? But it keeps you grounded. And, and those, my teammates before, keep you grounded. <laughs> they really, they and really I get, do. I guess you'll be pretty well practiced at that from your time as a colour sergeant at at one of the world's if not the world's most prestigious leadership academy sanders and you know no slouch for getting selected to be an instructor there that is for sure um so but one thing about that you would have seen so many different styles of leadership so many different backgrounds under you know some of the most pressured situations and and seeing some of the best of us go forward to be officers in the british army and indeed to other nations too but what is the difference why does our politics tend to attract more from the officer cohort and, and less so from the other ranks? And what more can be done to talk up their potential, not just in politics, but in business as well, perhaps? I think this is a, a really critical question because, I, well, firstly, I don't know the answer, but I can give you my kind of opinion, uh, both when we're in the army, of that delineation between, because leadership doesn't belong to commissioned or non-commissioned officers. You know, as you rightly know, it can be displayed in various different ways, different contexts and environments and in a time frame. And you mentioned Sandhurst. That was a really good eye-opener for me um, because before I went to Sandhurst as an instructor, I just had this uh, preconceived idea that officers came out of a, a factory, a literal factory where they were taught how to eat with their knives and forks and silly things like that where you, you would give them a hard time about it. And you didn't really see how they were or what they were given in terms of their, that kind of curriculum within a year around leadership, you know, but the vehicle of that was like infantry tactics or, uh, you know, basic military stuff. Um, 
that that was uh, an eye opener for me where I said, ah, right. So commissioned officers don't have the monopoly on leadership, and it's for everyone. But I do think we start at different places, whether that's um, officers or commissioned officers generally would come in. They've done a bit of time in, in tertiary education or a gap or, or some other uh, level of experience, um, whether that's learned or, you know, it's uh, or open university, anything, whether that's a basic degree. So they've got a bit of a start, more academically minded, um, but more intelligent in certain aspects of, of the application of leadership. So they may start at a point, but me as a, as a soldier, as a ranger, when I was left out of school and I was 18, so where I started was very different. But the, those journeys do balance out and almost add an equilibrium at some point in terms of leadership ability. But you've got there very differently in two very different journeys, uh, but starting at different places. And, and you know, there'll be a lot, lot of debate about, you know, where does that equilibrium start uh, or meet? Is it the kind of senior platoon commander with a sergeant or is it, you know, a, a major and a sergeant major? That kind of balance. And again, that would be, down to personalities and, and all different different things, but there is where they do balance out, and and I think where maybe the military have not necessarily got it wrong, but they've brought forward this old style. It's it's out of date, maybe you know two hundred years, three hundred years ago in, in my regimental case, where there's a class aspect to it. Uh, yeah, in a way, when you talk about commission, and so you are starting off at those two different levels as well. Um, and I think it has been challenged. There is a some projects, um, castles, I think it was, re-looked at the whole system of what, you know, for late entry officers, when a soldier goes 22 years through most of their jobs, loads of experience and commissions, why is that person only allowed to do certain jobs? Why has he been discriminated against? Or, you know, why is she not allowed to have a direct entry commission? You know, and I think that's been, been challenged and has been addressed now. But Johnny, your last point on the politics is probably more so on the, that kind of era of of the empire, you know, that Churchill-esque type stuff. And I don't think that's been cascaded across where the military have seen the seen the issue, can exploit more and and, and really refine those pathways from a soldier, a commissioned officer, and a late entry officer. I haven't seen that in politics yet. And it's only until like I think your vehicle of what you're doing is challenging that. You're turning around and saying to the establishment and those who's in transition go, there's nothing stopping you being a politician at any level, local council, bread and butter issues, your legislative assemblies or devolved governments or right at the heart of the UK establishment. You know, because when you look at the ballot box or the paper, there's no other boundaries excluding you from doing that. It's everything else around that in terms of the that mindset or the perception of politics and, and in, you know, hopefully in this generation where we are, we can break that cycle and say, look, whether you finish as a Lance Corporal or as a Brigadier, you, you both should start at the same point at the ballot box to become a, a civic leader and, and, you know, and deliver your leadership to your local area in the way that your leadership works best for you. The rank commissions, non-commissioned shouldn't really come into it at all. That's just my opinion, Johnny. <laughs> it, it's it's a great you know? one. Then you're very generous to cite my work in that as well. Indeed, we can only do this 
by telling your stories and getting you involved in our work as well. And indeed, the likes of Sarah Atherton in Wales, you know, who was a junior NCO in the Intelligence Corps, Stuart Anderson, um, a former Royal Green Jacket in the in the Midlands in, in England. Um, so, yeah, these examples are what we need to tell our other rank community that you can do it too. And I hope that those listening today, hearing your story, will be inspired because that is our objective here, to actually have a go and stand up and serve again in the first place. And you've cited so many of those key skills. Obviously, we've had a little look at leadership. Um, we looked at that kind of selflessness commitment as a value um but what have been those key skills and behaviors and values perhaps that have been integral for your success this early on in your military career what are those things that military toolkit that you've lent into have there been any moments where you had to really go oh hang on a minute yeah I'm glad i can lean into that to, to help see you through yeah uh, th- there's not one that stands out but you mentioned the toolkit and i like that analogy because the same way, whether it's on the battlefield or an issue you have in camp, there's not one size fits all. You know, you, you can't just shout your way through a problem, you know, but there's a time and place for that, I suppose. So in politics, the kind of value or, or or the tool from that toolkit for me is about being, oh, how do I say this? So just be open and be straight with people. And you'll have loads of bias, uh, prejudice that we all have in some shape or form, but it's identifying those and say, okay, I get it. Keep that in the back of your mind and give somebody the benefit um, that they should have. So where you may not agree with people. So I I can use a, a, a comparable situation where there's sometimes you may not agree entirely with a particular order, you know, as basic as right, we're going left flanking or right flank or maybe straight up the middle. And you're like, oh, uh, that's going to be a bit tasty, that one. But hey, we're going and you're and, and away you go and it works out generally okay. Um, so there is that kind of, you know, a concession at certain aspects for the, you know, for, for that greater good or that objective that you were doing. And in a way, when I now work with other political people, uh, different uh, backgrounds or political parties um, or even constituents that have a, big different drive than what I've got. I'm saying, well, you know, I, I don't really, I don't necessarily agree entirely with, with what you're saying here, but I'm here, I'm working with you and maybe I can help you. Maybe that 60% of the problem. And either you may need to concede that 40% or, or I, or I may need to concede that 40%. So there's all sorts of, of, of just day to day situations you find yourself in where you, you need to be aware that, you know, your issue, your perspective is is it comes secondary than who you serve again and it's finding that that scale of whether you call it leadership or or you empathize and you communicate communication is is another big one where it's how do i what's the best way for me to communicate with with constituents uh, and that's as simple as whether it's an old lady and you're meeting that face to face um or if it's you're trying to engage with new people online and you mentioned earlier about you know the skateboard that wasn't even planned. That was in between uh, meetings where we were visiting a, a community centre and they had everything. It was it was perfect. It wanted me to be a kid again where I was like, wow. And I grabbed the skateboard and said, hey, check this out. Board meetings, you know, pun intended. And that went viral. And that got us thinking about, you know, start showing the human side of you to connect with people. First of all, because like anything in politics, once you come with a political brand or, or a party or there's baggage there, people just immediately switch off, say, not interested because politics hasn't wor- worked in the last 30 years. So it's trying to break that or their prejudice down 
in order to meet me as just Brian McCready and say, hey, how's it going today? And then you can take it from there. But that, that toolkit, you know, it doesn't matter where you went through Sandhurst as an officer or you've learned some of these tools as a junior NCO or looking at other people. You know, I've had some really good leaders, uh, sergeants, sergeant majors um, and peers. So I have guys that were the same rank as me. And I was like, you know what? I like this guy. I like the way he does business. And I'm going to steal some of how he how he the how he thinks, not necessarily the, the result and things. And I just find we we've had so many years in the army. We are learning so much from all these people that when we leave the army, we should be, you know, uh, a real asset to society. And, and in this case, we should be, you know, a, a force for good in politics. To as you say, kind of stand up and serve again, because we're primed, we're ready, we've got that toolkit. It's just the application of that of matching what drives you and what are you delivering for for the people and what do they need. So it's um you know I I don't feel at a disadvantage of me personally trying to do politics. My deficit in terms of politics as well, all the policies and the procedures and all that stuff. Where if you were joining um, a different sector of society to learn that trade, then you have to learn the basics of it. But you yourself as a as a veteran, you're going in with a really good foundation and, and we need to communicate that we are veterans say you're in a really good place the value that you have irrespective of where it goes is worth it you're worth it you know so you should be going in negotiating your salary or adding value say look I know how to fix this or and I don't mean that to be ignorant but be confident within yourself to say yeah I can do this and jump on that skateboard and ride yeah <laughs> or the surfboard <laughs> that went down the street as well but i forgot yeah. about that one <laughs> ryan mccready i think we'll leave it there it's been absolutely fantastic mate speak again soon no it's a pleasure thanks to our guests and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe now alternatively you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate donate or become our mate thank you